guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder Podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you doing? I'm doing so good. How are you? <laughs> I'm really good, and absolutely nothing is wrong with me whatsoever. So why do you ask? <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't sound like yourself. <laughs> I I, um, I got something from, I think I got it actually from my husband. He was sick whenever we got home this past week. Or I could have gotten it on the plane because I forgot to wipe the plane down when we left New Orleans, but not from the hotel because I wiped that thing down like crazy. So I don't know. I've got the crud. So yeah, so we are back from CrimeCon and you could have gotten sick at CrimeCon, honestly. There was so many people there that you could have come into contact with that might have been sick. So I'm very sorry that you're sick. I'm very thankful that I am not sick like that right now. (laughs) (laughs) What a terrible way to say I feel bad for you for being sick. (laughs) You literally said better you than me. That is exactly (laughs) No, it's fine. So since you are not feeling well, we're going to just jump right into the story this week. Um, We have a really interesting story from the 1980s, and it's kind of known as the Phantom of the Opera Murder. And somehow I had never heard of this story until just this week, or just not this week, but just when we decided to cover it. So I think it's one that everybody will enjoy. So not to waste anybody else's time. We're going to get right into it. And real quick, thank you, Mary Jane, for helping us with this one because we were yes. both basically on our deathbeds this week. Mandy was sick with a stomach thing. I had this and we were both almost in tears <laughs> trying to do this. So God bless you, Mary Jane. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. So Helen Hagnes was born in 1950 and she grew up the youngest of three girls on a farm in the picturesque town of Aldergrove, British Columbia, Canada. It was so picturesque that it was used as the fictional town of White Pine Bay in the show Bates Motel. Unfortunately, both the ominous looking house and the creepy motel have been torn down since the A&E series concluded. Aldergrove has been featured as the location of the Kent Farm on the show Smallville. The Canadian version of the American race featured two women from Aldergrove, Frankie and Amy Gassler, and it was the filming location for the Hallmark Channel's movie Coming Home for Christmas starring the Wonder Years actress Danica McKellar. Danica McKellar. Danica McKellar is Winnie from Wonder Years. Winnie and Kevin forever. That was one of my favorite shows growing up. My money is on you never having watched it, maybe never hearing of it. Have you heard of it? Yeah. I've heard of the Wonder oh, okay, Years. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> I almost just died. <laughs> yeah. Helen's parents were immigrants from Finland that operated a poultry farm, and they didn't have a lot of extra money, but what they did have and sometimes didn't have was used to further Helen's extraordinary gift as a musician. Helen's sister, Belsie, told the Associated Press that when Helen was two, she'd hear songs on the radio and then played them on the parlor piano. Just one of those super, super talented people that can play things by ear which you hear a lot about with musicians. And I guess it really is just a God-given talent because there is absolutely no way I could ever listen to a piece of music and just sit down and play it on any instrument whatsoever. Our friend Dee, her son, who goes by the nickname Duck, he listened to our like theme song several times and then he was able to play it on his iPad. It's incredible. I think I posted it a few weeks ago on our Facebook page, but it's I'm so amazed by people's talent like that. I just don't have that like with that natural like you just have an, a, literally an ear for music. So Helen did not pursue the piano, even though she was really good at it, but her passion was actually with violin. A lot of work and sacrifice was made to ensure that Helen had the best training possible. She traveled 76 miles round trip every week for violin lessons in Vancouver with renowned teacher Douglas Stewart. 
During the long drive on the farm's poultry truck, she would be self-conscious that she would smell like the manure on the farm. So she would actually drench herself in perfume, you know, before she went on these violin lessons. Her music teacher described her as an exceptional child, and her future success was not a surprise to him. Thanks to his teachings, Helen became the concertmaster, the leading first violin player of the Vancouver Junior Philharmonic and a soloist with the Seattle Symphony while she was still a teenager. At age 19, she enrolled at the world-famous Juilliard School in Manhattan, where she earned both her bachelor's and master's degree. And since the rest of the story really takes place in New York City, that is where we have Googled this city. There are around 8.623 million people that live in New York City as of the 2017 census. And that actually means that one in every 38 people that live in the U.S. actually resides in New York City. That's so much. Of course, I say this all the time, but hearing it as one in 38, like that really kind of drove that number home to me. (laughs) So on 9-11, there was one homicide that actually occurred 9-11, like the actual September 11th, 2001, one homicide occurred in New York, and to this day, it remains unsolved. Until the 1920s, everyone moved apartments on the same day. So from the colonial times until the 20s, May 1st was known as moving day in New York, and basically, if you were moving, that's the day you moved. So imagine what a logistical nightmare that would be for everyone in the freaking city to move on May 1st. Like, I don't, who thought that was a good idea to start off with? Like, yeah, I don't understand it ever being a good idea, let alone like until the 20s. So by the 20s, that idea was dumped because it was clearly terrible. The first pizzeria in the US was opened in New York City in 1895. And since around the 1960s, the price of a single slice of pizza is actually very close to the price of a subway ride in New York. This generated the idea of the pizza principle in the world of economics. So basically, as the price in pizza goes up in New York, so does the price of subways, vice versa. It's always very, very comparable. The term the Big Apple originally referred to horse racing. The city got its nickname from a horse racing column that ran in the 1920s in New York City. The Big Apple was a phrase used to describe a big money prize at important horse races that were held around the city. I don't know what I thought the Big Apple came from, didn't think it came from horse riding. Yeah, so. no, I definitely had no idea. I've always heard that and I kind of have wondered, but then not enough to go look it up. So thank you. I appreciate that. Not enough to literally <laughs> Google. <laughs> I know. But some things like that, I'm like, well, it would have been so easy for you to have figured this out on your own several <laughs> decades ago. Lastly, Albert Einstein's eyeballs are actually stored in a safety deposit box in the city. After he died, his eyeballs were given to his ophthalmologist, Dr. Henry Adams. No one knows exactly why they're there or why he kept them, but to this day, they reside in the safety deposit box. In closing, here are some quotes either made by Einstein or regarding Einstein with this newly found information about his freaky-deaky eyeballs. The first one is a quote from Einstein. It's, a person who never made a mistake never tried anything new. But a person who puts someone's eyes in a safety deposit box has made more than a few mistakes. It's like, <laughs> these are really, really terrible. <laughs> I feel like I say that all the time, but sometimes I'm like, well, maybe I'll pass. This is terrible. The next one is, it's like, way to go, Einstein. This is a creepy doctor. And lastly, <laughs> I'm really pulling these. And lastly, it's not E equals MC squared. It's more like E equals MC. Ooh. Okay, that's it. Please stop. <laughs> So during Helen's summers, she worked as a camp counselor outside of Montreal. It was here that she met her future husband, who was a sculptor named Yanis Minkis. 
Following her graduation at Juilliard, Helen studied violin further with violin masters in Italy at the prestigious Institute of Advanced Musical Training in Switzerland. She moved back to New York when she was accepted as a student of violinist Nathan Milstein. And just so uh, you guys can understand a little bit about what a huge deal this was and how amazing of a musician she had to have been, Nathan Milstein was one of the most renowned violinists in the 20th century. And up until his death, he was described as the complete violinist. And there's a quote that says, you heard three notes of the man and you knew who was playing. It was pure, uncluttered, honest, playing free of any technical problems. He set a standard that nobody today can touch. He had such incredible flow and such incredible fluency. So for you non-musicians, you could equate this to studying forensic science from one of the most famous forensic scientists, Dr. Henry Lee. Helen and Yanis married a year after she moved back to New York in 1976. She worked as a freelance violinist, meaning that she wasn't regularly employed by a specific symphony orchestra, but rather hired for a specific show or concert run. This gave her a little more freedom of her schedule and allowed her to travel and perform internationally to accompany singers and participate in various recording sessions. She was one of the most sought after freelance violinists at the time. So as I said in the beginning of the show, this story takes place in New York City in the 1980s. This is subways are covered in graffiti. There's drugs and crime. It's a big city. And Yanis wanted to make sure that his wife always made it home safe every night. So he would actually always meet Helen outside of her performances to walk her home. The musician and the sculptor genuinely love being together and they spent every minute that they could together. On July 23, 1980, Helen earned a violin seat with the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra Pit for the gala performances showcasing various ballets performed by the visiting Berlin Ballet. During that evening's performance, Helen used her break during the intermission at the end of Act 1 to try and speak to the show's choreographer and guest star dancer, Valerie Penov. She wanted to speak to him about a possible artistic collaboration between he and her husband, who of course we said was a sculptor, and he wanted to make a sculpture of Panov. As Helen was going to look for this man, she was kind of searching around this. This is a big opera house. So if you don't know your way around, I was reading and and learning more about this case that if you don't really know where you're going, then you don't know where you're going. You're not going to find your way. So she was kind of wandering around asking people, you know, how can I find where, you know, Valerie Panov's dressing room is? She was trying to go and locate him so she could talk to him about this sculpture that her husband wanted to do. So she got on an elevator and she asked an American ballet dancer who was with the Berlin Ballet named Laura Cutler if she knew where she could find Mr. Panov's dressing room. So there was also a stagehand that was on the elevator and he piped up and said that she could find this this man on level three. So this ballerina, Laura Cutler, exited the elevator on level C and she left Helen and this stagehand on the elevator when she got out. It's kind of important to understand how the elevator floors are numbered at the Metropolitan Opera House and the stage and orchestra pit are on ground level, same as if you were to enter the building from the street. So the subterranean levels descend in the order A, B, and C, and the floors going up ascend from one to six, and six would be the roof. And that will be something that comes up later in the story, so I just wanted to kind of put it out there so you would have a little bit of a visual of the layout of this opera house. As the orchestra took their seats to get ready for act two, Helen's $20,000 violin was in place on her chair, but Helen was missing. She hadn't come back. 
the other musicians really just assumed she got sick. And this was, as Mandy was saying, a freelance orchestra for this two-week performance. So the musicians didn't have this like day-in and day-out work relationship with each other like you might if they were always working, you know, several months at a time. So some of them may not have even known who Helen was. And so for her to not show up didn't really raise alarm bells to them like they had a job to do. And so... As usual, after the performance, Helen's husband, Yanis, was waiting outside for her to walk her home. But when she didn't come out of the Met that night, he really realized something was wrong and a search immediately began to take place. And before we get into that search, we're going to take a quick break for a word from this week's sponsors. Life comes at you fast, but when you're looking for counseling, minutes can feel like hours and hours can feel like days. You want help quickly, but how will you fit it into your schedule? Our problems rarely arise during normal work hours, so why is counseling mainly available during normal business hours? BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or maybe something that's preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp has you covered and at times that are convenient for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, anxiety, relationships, trauma, grief, and more. You can connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist without ever having to leave the house. BetterHelp is secure, convenient, and professional. If you ever find you want to change counselors, you can do so at any time with no additional charge. Financial aid is also available to those who qualify. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option, and Moms of Murder listeners get 10% off your first month. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love within 24 hours. Go to betterhelp.com moms and use discount code moms for 10% off your first month. Again, for 10% off your first month, go to betterhelp.com moms and use discount code moms. Shrimp and po'boys and beignets, oh my! We spent the last few days in New Orleans and I ate like I was training for a competitive eating contest in which I would be the winner, of course. But we're back in Florida and I'm working to get back on track with my eating, which really makes Noom a really great fit for me. I'm looking to have better self-control with eating and I'd also love to have more energy. And while I may have fallen off the eating well wagon, Noom is there to pick me up and help me back up again. Noom is a habit-changing solution that helps users learn to develop a new relationship with food through personalized courses. And like Melissa said, we are human. If you go off track, there's no shaming. There's just tips to help you get back on track tomorrow. I love that I can chat with my goal specialist and Noom community to get and give help to people who are going through the same things as me. And I find the app to be super easy, which makes it all the easier to stay committed. You don't have to change it all in one day. Small steps make big progress. Sign up for your trial today at Noom. That's N-O-O-M dot com slash moms. What do you have to lose? Visit Noom.com slash moms to start your trial today. That's Noom.com slash moms, the last weight loss program you'll need. And now back to the episode. So now we have Helen, this violinist who has just mysteriously vanished in the middle of a performance that she was doing. It was in the middle in intermission. So detectives Jerry Giorgio and Mike Strzok showed up to the Met at 4 a.m. to join the investigation. They ordered a room-by-room search of the entire building, which was a very overwhelming task because, as I said before, this building was huge and essentially was a maze with hundreds of doors and seemingly all these hidden corridors. At 8 o'clock the next morning, a maintenance man made a gruesome discovery. 
Sadly, Helen's body was found nude, gagged, hands and legs bound behind her back with rope and a piece of clothing laying face up over a beam in the opera house's air shaft. Detectives combed the theater and found her shoes on the roof and her clothing around the vicinity of the building. It appeared that her clothes had been cut off of her. They determined that she had been thrown off the roof into the air shaft. While searching for more evidence on the roof, a palm print was discovered on a pipe near the air shaft. This print had to have belonged to the murderer or someone that knew what had happened. At first, they actually thought that this palm print could have belonged to a police officer or an investigator that may have just accidentally, you know, placed their hand on this pipe. So, but they still lifted the print and, you know, they knew that that would be like a huge piece of evidence if it were in fact from, you know, not from a law enforcement officer. Didn't this whole search as they're like searching each room and everything, didn't it feel very... This is not meant to sound insensitive at all, but it seemed very much like Clue. You had all these like performers and you had these handymen and you had electricians and you had, you know, these renowned, you know, musicians and stuff. It was just kind of, um, I don't know, it felt very much like the game of Clue. Again, not making light of the situation, just it was very different than anything I've ever really heard of when everybody... All the suspects are in one place. You knew the suspects were people that were in that building that day. So then it's just a matter of finding out through like 800 people who could have possibly been a part of this. Right. And you think about, like we said, the size of this opera house and how many people were packed into it on this particular night because there was these ballets were going on. It was this, you know, big, huge performance. And it's not like it was an empty building. There was tons of people all over this place. So it just makes it very interesting. And then to think that she, you know, disappeared during an intermission in such a short period of time that she would have been away from her seat as a violinist. It's just kind of mind blowing. It's like, you know, I can imagine how the police even were like, what could have happened to this woman in this, you know, in that short period of time. Right. So the horrific discovery of Helen's body led to a six week investigation where they interviewed over 800 witnesses. The police notified all the members of the orchestra to report early to work the following day for questioning. And apparently they also fingerprinted everyone that they questioned as well in an effort to match any prints with the palm print that they found on the roof. The musicians that knew her described Helen as the loveliest, sweetest person, and she was always cheerful, good, giving, and friendly. She was the type of girl that called her parents every Sunday night in Canada. The police, of course, questioned Helen's husband, Yanis, extensively, and they looked at him as their first possible suspect. Yanis was really distraught over Helen's death, and the only solace he could find was at the bottom of a liquor bottle, and that was just part of people who knew him said that that was just one of the ways that he got through it. And, like, he was, as we said before, they were, like, very, very in love. They wanted to spend every waking minute together and he just could not handle this terrible, terrible news of what had happened to his wife. And so he drank heavily as part of his coping. So he was greatly incensed that the police were looking at him. And of course, I feel like that would be the case with any spouse, you know, that didn't actually do anything. Can you just, it would just be such a terrible situation to be in and then have the police looking at you and saying, you know, we need to question you and, yeah. you, you know, we think you might have had something to do with this. Oh, yeah, for sure. Because you're just grieving and then you're not even really given that opportunity because they have to rule you out, which you understand. You'll hear people say that. I understood why they had to look at me and I want them to look at me quickly because then you can actually go on to the person that's done this. But I can't imagine that's like heartbreak on top of heartbreak. Yeah. 
I mean, he had never even been into the backstage area of the Met in his right. whole life. He just, you know, he had always would pick her up outside of whenever she got off of work. And he he didn't know the building. So the police were convinced that this had to be an inside job and that the killer had to have had some kind of intimate knowledge of the layout of this building. So Yanis was essentially moved to the bottom of their list. Another suspect that the police looked heavily at was Valerie Panov, the Russian dancer Helen wanted to meet with on behalf of her husband. Panov had defected to Germany from the Soviet Union. This was all taking place during peak Cold War time, and anyone with Soviet ties was really looked at with suspicion. Police thought he could possibly be a Russian spy or even a member of the KGB, which reminds me of an episode of The Office, but I won't go into it. Now, it sounds like a far-fetched idea now, but back then, this was really a legitimate fear. There was tons of stuff like this going on, and so everyone was looked at really as a suspect with this. So Panov insisted to detectives that he had never even met Helen. She might have been looking for him. He didn't know who she was, and he had no knowledge that she wanted to meet with him. After reviewing the coroner's report, it was determined that at the time of Helen's death, Panov was actually watching his wife, Galena, performing on stage, so therefore he's kind of ruled out as a suspect. Medical examiner Elliot Gross determined that her death was a result of a fall causing skull fractures, broken limbs, and ribs from the beams she landed on, meaning she was actually alive at the time of this, you know, 60-foot fall. As the police continued to interview everyone that was in the Met Opera House that evening, they zeroed in on a stagehand named Vincent Donahue. He had shown up to work the day after the murder with scratches on him. He also had a freshly shaved head, which was a dramatic change in his disappearance from what he had just the day before. He had like this curly mop of a hairdo, really. So this, of course, raises alarm bells with detectives. Why does he have all these like cuts and stuff on him? Why would you just shave your head out of nowhere? But his excuse was that he was actually in the process of leaving his wife and they had gotten into a really big knockdown drag out fight that night after work and she scratched him. And because he was a petty, petty man, he decided to shave his head because apparently she loved his hair so much, he just knew it would piss her off. Which if somebody's scratching <laughs> you, I don't think you your natural inclination to be like, I'm going to piss you off even more. <laughs> but it was during the detective's interview with dancer Laura Cutler that they got their most compelling lead. Laura told them of this quiet stagehand that was in the elevator with her and Helen on the night of Helen's murder and that he had given Helen directions to Mr. Panov's dressing room. This stagehand's name was Craig Crimmins. When police started to talk to Craig, he began getting very, very nervous. Craig Crimmins was actually the 21-year-old stepson of the head stage manager. Apparently backstage at the Met, at least during this time, was very competitive. I'm sure it still is competitive, but it was one of those things where you know somebody to get a job. So not just any Tom, Dick, and Harry can get a job. Him having this direct connection to the head stage manager is very likely how he got a job there. The stage crew at this time in the 80s was also very notorious for drinking and getting high behind the scenes, which is terrifying considering all the equipment that they're dealing with yeah. day in and day out. <laughs> Crimmins was a baby-faced Irish Catholic altar boy that lived in the Bronx. He had, too, gone missing that night, missing his cues in Act 2, which caused another stagehand to have to take over his job completely. After they took his fingerprints, he started to crack under questioning. Originally, he admitted to being in the elevator with Helen, but said he got out and went and slept in the electrician's lounge. The only problem was the electrician that actually did go take a nap in the lounge said Crimmins was never there. Initially, police let Crimmins go. They're just waiting for the results of these fingerprints to come back. 
But at this point, he's really considered their top suspect. But then police get word that the press has learned his name and was about to publish it. And they realize that they're going to have to arrest him quickly before his family is able to hire attorneys and they won't be able to question him further. So the finger and handprint analysis came back and it identified Crimmins' palm print as the print lifted from the pipe near the air shaft. After picking up Crimmins and confronting him with the evidence linking him to Helen's murder, he broke down and confessed to everything. And we're going to get into Craig's version of what happened after one last break from a word from this week's sponsors. You guys know my ultimate dream is to live on a compound sort of thing where I can watch all the reality TV I want and never, ever leave my house, unless it's for a fountain diet Coke, of course. Stamps.com is bringing me one step closer to my dream. Every month, we send out personalized cards to certain tiers on our Patreon. And I love writing the cards, even though they look like they were written by a two-year-old. But what I don't love is driving to the post office, hauling my kids out of the van, and trying to keep them in line without touching every single thing. With Stamps.com, that is a thing of the past. We know lots of you have small businesses and you're sending invoices or shipping product and Stamps.com can help you do all of that, all from the privacy of your own home. Simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send it, even international. Once your mail is ready, just hand it to your mail carrier or drop it in a mailbox. It's that simple. With Stamps.com, you even get five cents off every first class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail. Right now, our listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Moms and Murder. That's stamps.com, enter Moms and Murder. As a woman, my monthly cycle is something I have been aware of literally for decades, but that doesn't mean I fully understand it. And while I've used those popular period tracking apps, with those, there is still a margin of error. Luckily, Ava is here to help us make sense of our bodies and our cycles. Ava is a Swiss startup company dedicated to advancing women's health and to breaking taboos around discussing the menstrual cycle. And Ava provides super fascinating insight into a woman's cycle and health, which includes data on sleep quality and quantity, or the lack thereof, physiological stress, your resting pulse rate, and more. With fertility tracking, Ava takes away the guessing games and is clinically proven to be able to detect the five most fertile days of your cycle. There's no longer a need to chart your cycle like the scientist you may not be, or maybe you are. Either way, Ava makes it easy for you. I have my tracker now, and I love how easy it is to use and how much I'm learning about my cycle without having to keep up with all the charts. I also love that 20% of the price of Ava goes directly to the company's medical research and development in women's health. Ladies, it's finally time to understand your body. Visit avawomen.com to learn more. And for listeners of our show, you can receive $20 off your order by going to avawomen.com slash moms and using our code moms. That's avawomen.com slash moms, code moms, for wherever you are in life. And now back to the episode. So the police are now talking to Craig Crimmins, and they've got his palm print that's a match to the one that they found on the roof. And now he has confessed to murdering this woman, Helen. And his version of the story goes a little something like this. He says that after Laura Cutler, the ballerina, left the elevator and left him and Helen on it together, he said he was extremely drunk and he started making these advances at her and said something rude to her and she was not going to stand for it. And she slapped him across the face, which, of course, really, really angered him and enraged him. 
As the elevator opened, he actually pulled a hammer on her and he attempted to rape her, but he was not successful with that. But he then ordered her to walk up six flights of stairs to the roof where he made her take off her shoes and he cut off her clothes and tied her up. He told her that he was just going to leave her there and that he would tell somebody where she was, but she kept getting up and getting free and trying to escape. And so he thought, well, she's much too strong. So, you know, he was worried that she was going to get away and was going to, you know, tell. But if he was going to send somebody up there, that doesn't really make sense at all. That story doesn't make any sense at all. No. So it was at this point that he decided that, he was going to murder her. And at this point, he said he just kind of threw her over the air shaft. Wow. So she landed on a beam and fractured her skull, which killed her instantly. Crimmins was placed under arrest for the murder of Helen. The trial of the Phantom of the Opera Killer was sensationalized in the newspapers. And the defense was trying to get Crimmins' confession thrown out because they felt that police used psychological threats to coerce a confession from him. The detectives, however, were very familiar with this tactic from defense attorneys. And during this time, this was actually a pretty common defense. So they actually took extra measures to make sure that they did not have evidence that that is what had taken place. And his confession was videotaped. And on this tape, you can see that the detectives are very clearly making sure that he understands his Miranda rights and that they give him plenty of opportunities to say, you know, if you don't understand a question or if you don't understand what we're doing here, you know, feel free to stop us and we can go back and explain it to you over again. So they gave him his rights very, very clearly and very slowly and carefully. And of course, this is all on tape. So they want to have this evidence for court because they know that this is going to come up again. Of all like interrogations I've ever seen, this is one that I would say like, they gave like the nicest yeah they gave like every chance for him to kind of get out of it so i understand how the police are kind of saying like no you know you cannot get this on us because it's taped and we gave him every option and they really did it was kind of unreal i actually thought i was watching like a reenactment because it was so like are you sure (laughs) you you hear what we're saying kind of thing yeah So, of course, all of his friends and family testified on his behalf, and they insisted that he was just the nicest guy and that he would never do this. Of course, you hear this all the time in court, you know, family members and friends. That's what everyone says. He would never do this, and he was the nicest guy. Well, it was no different in this case. But the defense brought in psychologists to testify to the defendant's disabilities. The doctors testified that his disabilities manifested themselves in a poor memory and short attention span with frequent confusion and an inability to understand words or think deeply, as well as attempts to extract himself from difficult situations by readily agreeing with what is told to him. The defense attorneys described Crimmins as highly suggestible. They went on to say that Mr. Crimmins would pretend to understand conversations that he did not really understand. The jury didn't buy the defense argument and found Craig Crimmins guilty and sentenced him to 20 years to life. In jail, he at one time shared a cell with John Lennon's killer, Mark David Chapman, and he said he didn't like him much because he was really quiet and just sat there and read Catcher on the Rye. First of all, that is one of my all-time favorite books. I know I read what? it in like ninth grade or whatever, but I love that book. What? No. I, yeah. I don't think I've ever known anyone that said that besides Mark David Chapman, the killer of John Lennon. <laughs> Well, uh, maybe you have something to worry about with me. Okay. (laughs) I love that book. It's so great. I actually have always wanted to, but I was afraid somehow it would make me into a killer. And so I've just been like, I'm not going to do it. I just, I I have enough going on. I can't do this. (laughs) It is interesting to me that the defense 
attorneys, obviously they, this had to be their defense. They had to have some sort of a defense for this guy, but there's handprints. There's a witness that puts him on the elevator with Helen. He said that he's on the elevator with with Helen. He wasn't in the spot he said he was. He wasn't asleep in that electrician's area. And he wasn't even in a spot where he was supposed to be working at the freaking Met. Like you're going to work at the Met. You're not going to just take a day off. So there's so much circumstantial evidence and then even physical evidence to put them there. I get that they have to have a defense, but it was kind of like, we're really pulling at straws now to have to say like, Maybe he just didn't understand the whole thing and you coerced this confession out of him. I don't know. I understand that's like basically the only card they had to play, but I'm glad the jury saw through that. Yeah. So that was the story for this week. A little something different. I know we don't cover typically cases that have happened that far back. I think we've only done a couple of cases from the 80s. Sometimes it can be harder to find information on those, but this was a really interesting story. I just, it's one that you just don't, there was some, you know, just interesting aspects to the story with how busy of a building it was that this happened in. It just kind of goes to show that these things really can happen anywhere. I just feel like that was my takeaway from it was that it's kind of just scary to think about, you know, that there was really so many people under the same roof that this happened in and it, you know, it went unnoticed. So kind of fascinating. To start off with like 800 suspects. Like, how often do they have that where they're like, nope, it's one of these 800 people. We know that basically. So I thought that was interesting because I wonder if that's in some ways more difficult because you've got to interview all these people to get through, you know, finding out any little thing. You have like a makeshift witnesses, but that's a lot of freaking witnesses. Oh, for sure. I don't know if it would be more difficult to have 800 possible suspects or to have no suspects in mind. I feel like those would both be very hard cases to work yeah. and kind of f- figure out what's going on. So that was our story for this week. We are not going to keep you much longer because poor Melissa needs to go to bed or something. <laughs> but <laughs> but we are going to do a couple of last thing before we go questions. And I'm excited about these. I pulled these off the internet myself. Yeah. And I can tell. Stuck out I can to tell. me. <laughs> They really stuck out to me. So, Melissa, <laughs> what is one ridiculous thing that someone has tricked you into doing or believing? Okay. I don't think I'm super gullible, which actually sets me up for disaster. I am a little gullible, though. So I know, like, the small one I remember is when I was little, my parents got a remote control. So I remember, I don't know if you remember, but before you had to, like, stand up and do the channels at the TV. And so my dad would like pretend to give me like magic dust in my hand and I would say like up or do like up and down with my hands and the remote or the TV would go up and down, but I didn't know we had a remote. So I thought I was magic. And so that was like a super exciting thing when I was little until I found out there was a remote control and I was like, why are you still making me go change channels when we have this like (laughs) magic machine? But one of my favorite things that I was ever involved in as far as like tricking someone. And by this, I mean, it was actually a total disaster and why I'm, I am kind of scared of these kind of things. I worked for an orthopedic surgeon and I've always wanted to share this story because it's so terrible. And like, I hope you cringe with me, but I worked for an orthopedic surgeon and his wife was our office manager. And one day his wife went over to the hospital, which was right next door. And he said, okay, there's like seven of us. He's like, we're going to hide in the x-ray area. And when she comes in, she won't see us and then she'll be surprised. And so we all go into the x-ray room, which of course is pitch black. And we hear her come up the stairs and we hear her come inside and start walking around. And she's starting to say names, Melissa 
um, are you here? And then he was looking at us and doing this shh, shh face and like laughing. And you're like, okay, I guess we're still doing this. And she's just, you can actually hear the panic in her voice as she keeps going around. She's like, Melissa, you know, everybody's voice. And like, I guess thought we had all been kidnapped and murdered. And so I'm like, and he just thinks this is going so well. But keep in mind, they're both our bosses. So who do you like, who do you try and help? So I was like under, like I was at the wall. So I would like randomly kick the wall hoping she would hear and be like oh they're in there but of course she was crying at this point and doesn't hear it and he's still blocking the door (laughs) and we're all just like petrified and so then literally she is crying and she's like I don't know if she's looking for a phone or what and he opens the door and he's like surprise and she stomps out of there so fast and he looks at us like he just can't believe this whole thing went wrong it was so terrible <laughs> and no one in the office he never talked to us about it she never talked to us about it it was like it never happened it was so oh, horrific no. yeah it was just like watching <laughs> something go too far and just i'm terrified of that so mandy what ridiculous thing has someone tricked you into doing or believing <laughs> So I was tricked. I was tricked very recently. It was just a terrible, terrible. It wasn't terrible. It was in love. I've been through this terrible story. That's why I told you my terrible story. I would never do that to somebody. (laughs) Okay. So when we were at CrimeCon, we brought these photo props with us. We had cutouts. And if you follow us on social media, you have probably seen the whole saga of what happened to our cutout. So we had a Diet Coke cutout. We had one that had a logo on it. And then we had a chicken cutout. So these were our cutouts that we were going to use to take photos with people or just carry around because we are Mandy and Melissa and we do weird things like this. <laughs> so so the first two cutouts, the Diet Coke and the logo, they got taken from us. We don't know what happened to them. They went missing on day one of day one minute one second (laughs) minute one they just as soon as I put them on the table they were gone so all we had left was my chicken cut out and it was very special to me I carried that chicken around the entire weekend I loved it got weird it ended up it (laughs) did not get weird so I decided at some point that because I was carrying around this chicken I was going to take this chicken and we're from now on going to call it clucky and Clucky's going to go around and get photos with all the podcasters that I can that I can convince to hold this thing. So I did. I got lots of pictures with different podcasters with Clucky. Lots of people got to hold Clucky and meet Clucky, and I was very happy about that. And then Clucky went missing, and I was very upset about this because I didn't get to take Clucky to everyone I wanted Clucky to see, and I was also upset because it was my Clucky. <laughs> so I'm assuming at this point that I have dropped Clucky on the ground somewhere and he's gone and I don't know where he is and kind of like panicking a little bit. And then Melissa's like, hey, Mandy, somebody has found your chicken. She shows me this Twitter account and somebody has my chicken and it's they're holding it for ransom. There's like a fake Twitter, ma'am's missing chicken, and it's a picture of my clucky and some strange man's hands and they're like demanding ransom and it's terrible. So basically now I feel like I'm being trolled and I don't know who has my cutout chicken, but I know someone has it that knows who we are and I'm just hoping that they will return it to me so I can continue on adventures with my clucky. And long story short, I go a long time. I never find clucky. And then Melissa, hold on. (laughs) There are two sides to this story, Mandy. There are two very different sides to this story. 
Yes, Mandy brought it around. She got to meet a lot of people with it, all that. My Diet Coke's been gone, mind you, since the first minute we get there. It's gone. Nobody gave a two craps about that thing. It's gone, and I really needed it. No, but someone propositioned me with a chicken. Hold on. Someone came up to me and was like, hey, I want to steal Mandy's chicken. And I said, I don't think that's a good idea. But then, and I did the video of this, me telling Mandy, she ate corn nuts one inch from my face in a room. If you've ever listened <laughs> to somebody eat corn nuts, it is it will make you stab your ears out. But here's what I learned about Mandy. When she says she doesn't watch TV, she doesn't watch TV. So that room would be totally silent besides corn nuts because there's no TV in the background to like make up for the noise of the corn nuts. So after she- You could have turned on the TV. You could have turned oh, the TV on instead of- Stealing my no, chicken. No. I had been pushed too far by that point. Um, I don't even actually know if that's this series of events, but in my mind, that's how I'm playing it out. So I I said, oh, I got to go to the bathroom, Mandy. And she was getting ready. So I was like, I'll just go downstairs. And I took the cutout, put it in my jacket, went downstairs, met somebody at the restaurant bar area, exchanged it and said, hey, listen, if she gets upset, you have to give it back to me. I promise I will. I will. Okay, but if she, like, there's people she wants to get it with, so I want to make sure she does it. I was really trying to, like, have fun with you, but also make sure, like, Clucky made made it everywhere you wanted to. Person assures me. Sure, sure, sure. I'm like, all right. Well, now it's out of my hands. Now I'm screwed. And so what happened later that <laughs> night, because this was my favorite thing that's ever happened in my entire life. We go downstairs, and Mandy's talking about this freaking chicken still. And this guy from out of nowhere, like a law and order show, turns to us and he's like, I know where your chicken is. And I'm like, what? Who is this guy? And not a part of crime con, nothing. He's like, I watched the entire exchange go down. So every time Mandy would turn her head to in disbelief, this guy would like look at me and wink. I was like, he's going to wrap me out. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. He sees the whole thing. He's like giving Mandy clues, but I don't, but the clues weren't even that great. And it was like a whole thing. But the whole time he like, he knows the entire thing. It was, it was the funniest thing. I don't know if it's translating how funny it was, but it was hilarious to watch Mandy question yeah. this guy. And every time she turned around, he looked at me and just like acted like he was going to wrap me out at any second. Yeah. So Melissa took the chicken from me and gave it to another podcaster. And I still don't have my chicken in my hands. And I've been told that I'm going to get my chicken back, but I am losing hope every single day that I'm ever going to see Clucky again. And I'm very sad about it. And then, yeah, I tried to get Clucky back at the airport. So I didn't know. I didn't know that Melissa is the one who was behind the whole thing until like two days later. It was very we obvious. It was very obvious. Even if you asked me, you would ask me in front of people and I would be like, no. And then the person would look at me and be like, you did, right? And I'm like, mm, I don't know. But you wouldn't look at me at that point. I was like, I'm, I'm trying not to lie about this. I'm just kind of like, did you take it? Eh, no. <laughs> but I don't think you just, oh, gosh. I think you just trusted me too much in that. I did. I did. Well, never again. <laughs> <laughs> so that is the ridiculous thing that I have been tricked into believing recently that Melissa was honest. No, and <laughs> that is not fair. That's not fair. Melissa was a part of it. I'm just kidding. Part of a prank. I really did. I promise you like, I'm just kidding. I know, but I do promise you that I really like, I do need to get this out because some people think I'm a very terrible person that leave reviews on this podcast and this is not going to help me at all. <laughs> I 
really was like, you have to promise me if she gets upset. Like, if you were all upset, I would have taken it. And this person even asked you. I don't know if you even remember who this person was, but they were like, but you're fine with it. And you were like, yeah, yeah, it's fine. Like, it's fun. Like, it was actually really fun, like, the last day looking it. was it. really yeah. fun. So, but was, I was like, yeah. if it turns, I remember kicking a wall in an x-ray room. <laughs> like, you have to call this. Like, I can't do this again. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. No, it was so fun. And if you haven't like seen all of our shenanigans on social media, you'll have to go back and look at the stuff that we posted at CrimeCon because it was really so funny. And yeah, it was a whole fun thing. So if you were following that, I hope you enjoyed it because I absolutely thought it was the greatest thing ever. Last thing, hopefully this one won't take as long. What is one thing you would change about your physical appearance, such as having different hair color, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Is this like implants, that kind of stuff? Like it can be anything? <laughs> I mean, like if you could be born maybe with a different feature. Okay. This is not like a vanity thing at all. Like I'm fine with how I am. I feel like that's the way I was created. It's totally good. I've spent 35 years accepting it. It's, it is what it is. I did try to dye my hair pink. Mandy knows this. A few weeks ago, <laughs> but it was like the like two week stuff my hairdresser put in in the first day I wore a hat. And so I was like, maybe I'm not made for pink hair because I'm clearly trying to hide it the entire time. So by the time I got to CrimeCon, it had washed out because I had s- put so much hot water in there. So I think I'm just kind of boring. I like being tall. I'm not like vain at all. I'm just like accepted and this is how I look and that's just kind of where I'm, I'm not at. asking you what you love about yourself no, I, but that's what I'm saying like I, that's just like I don't know like I feel like if you change one thing you change everything and I don't know I'd like a thinner nose I have like a little pig nose that's about it oh and I'd like to, an mm-hmm. eye lift this much because one of my eyes you can't <laughs> see my eye like at all my um, lid but I mean really I don't care those are all silly things go ahead Mandy yeah yeah. Yeah. I mean, I agree. I'm I'm mostly happy with myself as a person, but I probably if I had to pick one thing I would change, I would change my skin. I've always been, especially living in Florida, I've always wished I could just have that like sun-kissed mm. glow, but I can't because I'm just as white as a sheet and like it doesn't matter how much time I spend in the sun. I'm, I still just look like a, a very, very pale person who's been in the sun. I have always like disliked that, you know, for some reason. I wish I could just get like a nice deep brown tan. Please tell this to my son, the ginger, and let him know. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Let him know how you feel about that. Yeah. No, I get it. Like I, but if you would have asked me this at like 18, I would have had like a whole list. But somehow along the lines, you're just kind of like, "Mm, I've been doing this for so long. This is just what it is. It's not going to get any better. (laughs) All right. So that was just very interesting. Um, was it? Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I, I would have clicked off a while ago. <laughs> yeah. Well, final words. Clucky, if you're out there, please come home to me. <laughs> That's all I want right now in life. So again, I have an Etsy link. I can order you a new Clucky. You would never even know. I would. I will know. I will know the sight of my Clucky when I see it. <laughs> Oh, Lord. And buy Diet Coke. I guess you didn't matter to anyone who cares about you. (laughs) And the logo. I don't know. If you have those, if you listen to our show and you took the Diet Coke and the logo, there is no hard feelings. We are just having fun I think you took it um, on accident. I think you thought it was merchandise and we just put it down and you took it. I totally don't think anyone was being malicious. But for goodness sakes. No, 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 no. If you have it, please just help us in the mystery. Yeah, (laughs) seriously. All right, guys, we will see you next week for a new episode. Bye. 
Thanks so much for listening to the Moms of Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.